Welcome to episode 40 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haying. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. And today we have a very special guest. Wait, what's your actual name? Because I only know... Angel Russell. I told you that. Angel Russell. Yeah, I know. That part of my brain doesn't work. (laughs) Angel Russell, a.k.a. Professor Sex. That's me. You want to give us a little bit of an introduction? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Sagittarius. I like long walks on the beach. Oh, wait. No, it's not true. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Uh, so I am Professor Sex uh, from Professor... My, my husband will say, oh, they're Professor Sex from ProfessorSex.com. Like, that's how he says it, all in one breath. Mm-hmm. Um, ProfessorSex.com is a space that I curate on the internet that's sex education for adults. It's pleasure-based sex education. It's all medically accurate. It's all empirically based, empirically informed. Um, I tend to not put anything out there that I can't find a source to cite for, Um or if I don't have a source, I try to make it really clear, like, oh, we're talking about someone's personal experience here. Um, but it is pleasure-based, which I think makes it distinct from some of the other forms of sex ed that you get. Um, and it's really not for young children. It's for late adolescents and adults to um, kind of get permission to explore who they are and find a way to explore that safely and feel like empowered to have make good decisions um, for their sex lives. So that's sort of what I'm doing. Um, if you go to professorsex.com, all of my social media links are at the top. There's a newsletter you can sign up for, which is really just me making empty promises. Uh, 2020, <laughs> that's going to be the year of the newsletter. Yay. And uh, also just a fun little announcement. You guys are the first to hear it in any official capacity. Uh, a friend of mine and I are starting a podcast. I did not get his permission to throw the name out there yet, but I'm very excited about Ooh, it. So excited. Sounds fun. If people are interested, they should follow me on social media because the announcement will be out soon. But it's going to be a sex science podcast. So just to piggyback off that a tiny bit, speaking of new podcasts, I did a guest spot on a new podcast called Poly Pages, which is a highly academic podcast. Basically, they choose one peer-reviewed paper, study, or book, read it, and then discuss it with the guests. They're releasing that episode actually at the exact same time this episode is coming out. So if you're listening to this awesome. on Friday, December 6th, you can head on over to Poly Pages and listen to me again for an entire bonus episode because I think I dominated way too much of the talk time. Not Michael. <laughs> Not me. I didn't talk at all. I don't know what you're talking about. If that's the that's the model for the podcast that we're doing. It's we're going to take a peer reviewed piece of literature. It's very academic, and then we're going to discuss it in layman's terms and discuss how it applies to people in their in their lives and how can people get access to the information if they don't have you know, the academic subscriptions to get to these papers, you know, how can you get this information for yourself? So we're taking a very similar approach, but um, kind of broadly applying it to sex, sexuality, gender. Great. Well, so links to all of Professor Sex's page will be in the description. Links to Polly Page's uh, episode that I am also in will be in the description. And if we come up with any other more links, I'll stick them in the description. Following up on episode, was it 38? The book review is our finally up. So this is four (laughs) weeks later. We said one week, so only three weeks late. That's less late than I thought it was. So we got it up after four weeks. If you haven't gone and checked it out, please go check it out. A couple of interesting things about that. So first of all, that's one of the resources we've been able to build with some of the donation money. I actually made Mandy and Sarah track their hours so I could pay them hourly. They don't know that yet. They're going to get not a lot because it didn't take us a long time to do that, but a a good hourly rate. I was going to say, I should have said it took me an hour then. (laughs) (laughs) 
Aren't you the ethics guy? <laughs> yeah. A little update on how donations are going, because whenever I talk about donations, we do get more, so it's a worthwhile thing to take a minute for. We've received a total of five donations for about $135. Oh, yay! We spent about half of that to build this book review page that we're going to keep updating. So also, if you guys have other books we didn't review that you want us to review, go ahead and send them to us. We'll try and read them. If we think they fit with what we're doing, we'll post up why we like them on that page. And we're going to keep building out that resource page. And then the other half of the money we put towards buying the full updated software that we use to edit this program. So I had a the basic version and we bought the pro version with half of that money and I matched it half for half of my own money to buy the other half. And that's what your donations have gone to so far, but please, if we could get more donations, that'd be great. That helps us do more and better things. We'd like to do a lot more than we're doing and we can do that with your help. And not make you people listen to commercials. We're looking at other ways also to try and raise funds. One of the things is if you go to the book page, if you follow the links through if they are Amazon links, then we get a small amount of money if you buy something once you follow the link through. So if you want to buy one of those books we recommended, even if you weren't going to go look at the book list, but you're going to buy it anyway, you're going to buy someone a Polly book for Christmas, go to our book list, click through and buy things. And that's a way you can help us without having to actually throw money at us directly. Also, as always, please like and share. That's a huge deal. We want to get this information to as many people as possible. That is why we do it. So please don't keep it a secret. Please share it with all of your friends. Okay. I think that is... Oh, wait, oh, no. and the baby! I was gonna say, I was promised. <laughs> really big announcement. Sometime this week, I'm gonna have my second child. So it's gonna be a wild ride. I think I'm gonna be able to keep hitting the podcast every week. I do want to warn people that there will not be a podcast on the... 21st we're taking Christmas and the holidays off again like last year so just like last year please and thank you <laughs> good for you so there will be one the 28th though so we're just taking off one one week basically so three weeks from yeah. this release date the December 6th there'll be another podcast release between holiday elements is enough announcements I hope okay one question just since we were talking about the books so I was going to ask, what is your book? If ah. we were to ask you, like, what your number one information source is in book mm. form, what would be your first recommendation for new poly people? Right now, my number one recommendation would be Building Open Relationships by Dr. Liz Powell. Hmm. It's very interactive. There's a lot of exercises. There's a lot of opportunity for discussion. I think that the key to ethical non-monogamy is communication. Sure. And effective communication. Is that Liz's new book? Yeah, it's Liz's new book. And it's fantastic. Um, the material in it is amazing. Um, so you can go to Sex Positive Psych and there's links there. Or it's Building Open Relationships. It's on Amazon. Um, and it's honestly, like that's my current favorite to recommend for new poly folks. And Liz is amazing. Dr. Liz Powell yeah. is a great presenter, a great counselor. They're, they're an amazing person all around as well. I would say just like a favorite human of mine. So, um, and I know I'm, I'm biased towards them as a person, but that, the book was phenomenal. So yeah, I definitely love recommending that book. To people and then maybe love's not colorblind kevin patterson's book yeah kevin's book love's not colorblind um just talks about inclusivity in the poly community and i think that that's something people tend to be when they're in big relationship transitions or any big transition people tend to be very um kind of all about themselves another thing that i think successful poly people have in common is community and building community intentionally, especially at the beginning, uh, getting a lot of diverse feedback and a lot of diverse input and having a lot of different types of people in your corner 
because the way one person does poly isn't necessarily going to be the way that you do poly and getting the kind of support that you need. It's just really valuable. You know, you can't really, it's not the kind of thing that you can do without support. I, I think it makes it a lot harder to not have support. And so a book like Kevin's that talks about very intentional community building in a way that's very inclusive and affirming is amazing. So yeah, love's not colorblind and um, building open relationships. Those would be my, my two recommendations. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. I did, I did have a question. So the name Professor Sex, I've always wondered, were you actually a professor or? Uh, so yes and no. Uh, it is meant to be academic. Um, I don't, I'm still working on the last threads of my thesis for my master's to get an official, like regular mm -hmm. teaching gig. But all of the teaching that I do is at the university level. It's just a lot sure. of like guest lectures. Um, so I'm doing a lot of that. Um, but it was actually an X-Men reference. Oh, like Professor Xavier? Yeah. Sex ed tends to not speak mm -hmm. to people in the margins. Sex ed tends to speak to straight white cis folks. It just does. Right. Sex ed speaks to scaring children poorly. Yes. Yes. But scaring cis straight white children. Like, so it's, it, it does have a target. When you look at like the brochures at your um, urologist or gynecologist mm -hmm. office, or when you look at the pictures in the textbooks, or if you had to watch any of those miracle of life videos in health class or, you know, any of that, it was always a certain type of person. And I, what I want to do is something that speaks to everyone else. Not that sure, those people sure. don't have a seat at the table, but just like, Hey, this isn't, this might not necessarily be for you. Or like, I'm okay with education that maybe makes those folks feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. if it makes people in the margins feel better and safer and seen right. and valid because you can't, education has to be something you like connect to that yeah. you relate to. Mm -hmm. for it to sink in. And I think a lot of people miss, that's why sex ed fails so many people, is people miss the message because mm -hmm. they can't relate to it. You know, like any of you ever get the like sticky tape analogy for virginity no. when you were growing no. up? No, what is that? It's like a piece of tape rolled up backwards and then they pass it around the room. And so it's really sticky at the beginning, but then by the time it gets to the last person, it's like not sticky anymore because everybody's touched it. And then what? That's awful. Yeah, it's like disgusting. So his hands are gross. And so they basically say like, you're this piece of tape. And like the more people that touch you, oh like God. the grosser you are. That is awful. <laughs> it was like that or we got like chewed gum. So they, like, they were like, if you put a piece of gum in your mouth and chew it, and then you pass it to the next person and they chewed it and you pass it to the next person and they chewed it. That was the other one. Or like I was in a, I was in a talk one time where it was a flower petals, a flower like with petals and every person had to pull a petal off the flower as they passed it around. So that by the time it got to like the last person, it was like this wilted weed of nothing. And so that was the kind of education I got. And so I didn't, I can't, you know, like this kind of, or like just pictures of rotting genitalia, right? Like that was the other thing, like the you'll get pregnant and die, which is funny because oh. we talk about STIs on the podcast, this idea that they're very scary, you know, and that it's this mm -hmm. thing that's going to kill you. And that was the education that I got. Sure. That's what we all got. That's what, that's what we, I, I think Mandy and I are more familiar with that. Yeah. I wasn't as familiar with the, the direct devaluing metaphors. I, I gotta <laughs> yeah. say, I think in the area that I came from, it was already so clearly established that the number of men you had been with was directly inversely proportional to mm -hmm. your value that they didn't need to add metaphors yes. that was just a given <laughs> already yeah um yeah but yeah we got the yeah. I, I still remember vividly they broke up the stis and gave every kid in the room one sti to have to to do and i know that mine mm -hmm. was uh, genital warts and lice and you know you got pictures and really 
spend a lot of time with it and yeah like i bitch about what my kids are being taught in school and it's nowhere near like this shit like this is insane (laughs) they now my daughter did i think i spoke to angel about this when um when they did their last because they do it like every year for a week and it's like Mm -hmm. right right before summer yeah go have fun (laughs) have fun don't get genital warts They were talking about something and it's, it was so hetero and my daughter was like, okay, well, what, but what if two females and they're like, that's not what we're talking about and just brushed her off. Yep. And I'm like, (laughs) wow, (laughs) my daughter who's bi just wanted to know a valid question about, you know, something that happens between two females and they just brushed her off. Yeah. They're scared if they talk about that, they'll get a thousand angry letters from the rest of the kids' parents. Yeah. Yeah, because the other message is, like, we don't even address frequent sexual behavior or, like, what promiscuity or whatever. I'm using air quotes for people who are listening. I wasn't using the word seriously. But this idea that, like, every person you have sex with devalues you was a given. Mm-hmm. Being queer, devaluing you was also a given. So why do we... We don't even talk about it, right? Like, we don't even address that people might have same-sex partners. The other thing, I think, that also be- is a barrier to educating toward same-sex um, sexual safety, especially with women or with uh, people who have vulvas. At least when we were kids, people just didn't do that much research. They just didn't know. Or they knew and nobody was sharing the information. And so the people, our health teachers who were doing sex ed with us didn't have answers to those questions. They didn't know the answers of like, is it, you know, this is the same era where we all grew up thinking that if we didn't want to have the risk of sex, we would have oral or anal instead, right? Like that's, you know, people thought, oh, well, I, I will have oral sex instead of having vaginal sex and then that'll be safer, you know, and this idea that we just had really bad right. information going around because the whole big message was just don't do it. So if it wasn't an easy answer, you just didn't get an answer. You got blown off like, oh, that's not what we're doing here or... And I think it's still like that. So Anywhere that you're in an area that's doing uh, abstinence-only education, because for sure that was what we were getting. I was not getting the kind of education that tells you how to have safe sex. I was in the education telling you, if you have sex, you will get a horrendous disease. Mm -hmm. It will ruin your life. You will get pregnant. You will be destroyed. Yeah. And you are a drain on society. (laughs) I'll be. (laughs) So in, in that context, part of the requirement of that context is the claim that the one reason to have sex is children yes. basically the way that it's structured is sex is actually awful and terrifying and the worst but if you're doing it to have kids that's important because we have to continue society mm-hmm. and that's sort of the reason why it speaks only to one kind of demographic because sex with between two women isn't going to produce a child directly through the sexual act right yeah obviously you can now have kids and adopt kids and use surrogates and donors and all the rest but that's part of the like when you're like when she asked a question and it's perfectly valid. I'm like I'm pretty sure that's still a, a um, an abstinence only education that you're describing. So I'm I'm pretty sure the narrative there is the only functional reason to have sex is to have children, and therefore they can't discuss anything that's non child rearing sex because for sure nobody talked about oral or anal during my abstinence only yeah have babies sex training. But that's why people thought it was safer. I None of us got that education. None of us got this like, well, let's talk about oral sex. Let's talk about anal sex. Right. Because if you don't talk about it, there's nothing scary about it. Just do it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, or nobody expressly told me not to. So let's. Right. So this must be okay. It must be or it must be safer mm-hmm. or, you know, nobody's given me this information. 
And so also there's a lot of uh, like a purity myth mm -hmm. wrapped up around like abstinence or decisions sure. around abstinence. And so this idea that if the only type of sex that counts, again, air quotes, is mm -hmm. a penis going in a vagina, then like anything else is game as long as you don't do that. Oh, yeah. You get to still consider yourself this like quote unquote pure sure. virginal whatever in the eyes of your parents, church, whomever is mm -hmm. important to you. Like you still get that, you still yeah. get your, your V card, but you get to like do all these other things because yeah. nobody ever, the only sex that anybody ever told you counted was sex that could produce a baby. Yeah. And the only context under which a reproduction is a valued part of society is a context of a man and a woman getting married, you know? So there's this very specific narrative, like you said, that the mm -hmm. only appropriate quote unquote way to have sex is if you're going to make a baby yeah. and the only good time to make a baby is two married people mm -hmm. and that's it. And then there was this like additional sort of myth that like, oh, well, once you're married, sex will be, like, at least what I got was, oh, once you're married, like, sex will be great. Right. It'll just, it's, it's like instinctual and it'll just come to you and it's going to be amazing and Snow White and the birds. Yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't even any education in terms of like, okay, for married folks, when you get to that point, here's some tips or here's some things to think of, or maybe you don't want to have babies right away. Here's some things to think about with that. Yeah. Like there was none of that. It was just like, you know, you'll figure it out. And good luck to you. And then if people had issues, they thought that was normal because whatever was happening inside a cis het marriage was normal and quote natural and whatever. And so there was this idea. I mean, I've just heard from so many people who I put something up on the Professor Sachs Facebook page recently that was like a like Hazel Mead on Instagram does these really cool drawings where it'll be a whole bunch of little um, co uh, concepts around like, like I think this one was things you... Things you wish you learned in sex ed. Ooh, I shared that. Yes. Yes. And one of the things in the like top left corner was sex doesn't have to hurt even the first time. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that statement was really upsetting to some of the folks on the page because they felt like it was irresponsible to say that sex doesn't have to hurt or that sex shouldn't hurt because for some people it does. And I said, well... You know, pain is like your body's way of giving you signals mm -hmm. that maybe something's like a miss, right? And unless you're actively seeking a painful experience, if there is pain in your experience, maybe it's time to slow down. Maybe it's time to have more foreplay. Maybe it's time to get some lube, you know? Or get something checked out. Yeah, yes. Yeah, depending on the type of pain. But And that's the other thing is we say, oh, the first time hurts. What could there be a more open-ended statement? Like the first yeah. time hurts. What level of hurt? How much hurt should I expect? How long should it hurt? Should it hurt every time? What's different about the first time? That's not later. It's it's a very gross misunderstanding of how bodies work, of how sex should be. It And the first time hurts is a statement directed at people mm -hmm. with vaginas. Sure, sure. Nobody says that yeah. to guys. Yeah, like nobody with a penis was ever told. Yeah. We, we are told that, but it's, you know, like it's horrible. It's like, well, the first time's going to hurt her. Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, so don't, wor don't, don't worry about it too much because it's going to hurt. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. I, I've heard that that's the education that happens. And I've been in the room and heard that repeated. And, and then we wonder why kids have a hard time with consent, like why they have a hard time yeah. with body language and why they have a hard time understanding. But yet we give them permission to be in a situation where one of them is invisible, clear pain. And the other one's like, press on yeah. good soldier. Like, you know, there's no, there's no meth. And, and that myth right there, this myth, 
about that first time. That's like just one example of the whole system being mm-hmm. not medically based and sure. not, you know, like, like there's virginity is not a medical yeah. term. Like hymens don't burst, you know, like these aren't things that are true, right. but, but man, save that on the internet and watch the comments explode. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you said, there's, they don't really tell you anything, but other surprise things like, what is it? Some percentage of, of men that's relatively high, like 40 plus percentage of men become ultra sensitive right after orgasm to the point of almost pain for motion for instance. So that's a huge surprise if you've never been with any guy and then all of a sudden his face just turns into like a rack of pain right after. And you're like, what's going on? What's happening? And you can't touch him. And of course, you know, as a guy, well, most guys have been masturbating for a while, so they know that. And like, I thought that was what everybody did. And then I was with a girl for the first time and she was horrified that I was in pain after. And I was like, well, I actually really like sex, so I'd like to keep having it. And she's like, but you look so in so much pain. And I'm like, I don't, I, I mean, but like, she was really uncomfortable with it and was really worried about it. And I'm like, yeah. but like, it's all right. But you know, cause there's no education around that at all. Like, no. And then I was like, well, am I weird? So then I had to go Google it. And that's how I learned that it's not everybody, but it's a percentage of people that's rather high. And I was like, oh, all right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The first time that happened to me, I thought yeah. I broke him. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I remember yeah. feeling very I was like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? Yeah. 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 You're not supposed to hurt. <laughs> well, and I'm supposed to hurt, not you. <laughs> right. And well, we have, we have similar kinds of education around like clitoral stimulation, mm-hmm. right? So uh, a lot of it is like, oh, just go for the clit. Like it's like an on button on a remote. And there's a percentage of folks with clits who are like, please don't, that will hurt me. Right. <laughs> like, right. please, please don't do that. But like right. we, we have this like one treasure map that's like how to please a woman, Cosmo, page 64. Like, and it's got basically, you know, two paragraphs on the exposed portion of the clitoris, which is sensitive, double insensitivity, the head of the penis. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's 8,000 nerve endings in the exposed portion of the clitoris and 4,000 nerve endings at the head of the penis. And so you talk about that pain that some penis havers experience like after sex, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a sensitivity. Like, oh, that's too much. And so I try to relate that to folks with the clitoris and some folks with the clitoris are like, no, you can, you can jackhammer away at that. It feels amazing. And other folks are like, if you look at it too hard, I'll die. So, but we don't (laughs) teach that. And so then all of a sudden there's these pain experiences and the fact that it can vary from partner to partner. And so knowing like, don't carry those assumptions and it just Mm -hmm. sort of circles us back to like communicating about our bodies and communicating about what we need and what feels good and always feeling a little like, am I weird? Is this just me? You know, and so I don't want to have the conversation where I'm the only one with this problem. I, I'll just, I won't say anything. So. Well, and good, good actual statistics about what penis size is supposed to be. God, there is, every guy (laughs) spends such an incredibly large amount of time being terrified that their penis is too small. It's ridiculous. You say that in there. I just saw something on Facebook today, an article that someone shared that was like, finally, we know now. What was interesting about this article is so that, you know, if you went and looked at research about average penis size. Well, you know, in my in in my mailbox, even as like a eighteen year old kid, my email box, I had things going. Are you less than eight inches? You're below <laughs> average. You need to get this, you know, technology that will increase your penis size. <sighs> yeah. And uh, you're going. That doesn't sound right, but I still feel like a terrible person for not living up to this standard. <laughs> yes. But so, but when you did go and do the research, they would say, well, okay, the average size is like they'd say like I think five point seven five something like that. And this study yeah. says, that well. Right. 
those studies were all done by asking men to measure themselves. And it turns out men will lie if they measure themselves. They will do whatever they... Or not not maybe intentionally, maybe intentionally. Yes. But maybe also they'll just keep pushing the tape back into their body to figure out how deep they can yeah. go to, to yes. call yeah, the line. Like pull, and they'll measure yes. the bottom instead of the top. Mm. And So, you know, here are the official how you're supposed to measure it guidelines. What we did for this study was we called guys in and we measured them. And... You know, I think this yes. is an American study, so uh, I don't know what this says, if this, you know, about the world. But in America, at least, they said that the average size when they measured it was like over a thousand men or penis having individuals rather was like 5.3 inches, I think, is what they came away with as the average. Yeah. Yeah. 5.25. Like five and a quarter. Yeah, like and then the average girth of like four and a quarter or four and a half, something like that. Yeah. Those averages or those, that math is a lot of the science that goes into making um dildos mm -hmm. and like vibrating sex toys so they look very big in the package but the actual insertable portion is usually roughly one standard deviation up from like mm -hmm. a standard penis size so it's actually not much larger than sure. the average penis just like slightly um and sometimes not at all like you can check the measurements um but they just look so intimidating because like the bases where the battery packs mm -hmm. are really big and they come in these big packages yeah. well and there's no body attached to them so they're just <laughs> you know they're just there's no yeah there's nothing to like relate it to um but yeah uh when you look at like the actual measurements people are like oh that looks so big that's actually sure. not it, you know it's right. not like this big eight inch like whatever but the other thing that that i thought of when you were talking is if you're somebody with a penis and you're getting these emails saying your penis is too small that's gonna get you and then at least in this in you know our generation and every generation since the first place you go is to google and so most people are getting their education about sex from porn. Mm -hmm. And most of the folks in porn have larger than average right. genitalia because it makes porn easier to shoot. Like it's not like even- They were cast that way. They were cast that way. <laughs> so whether it's proportional in terms of like their bodies are smaller to make their mm -hmm. dicks look bigger or they just have larger dicks or whatever it is, or they're cast with people, with partners who look a little smaller to like- and some of that's just so it's easier to shoot the scene. And some of that is like this glorification of like an overly large sure. dick. But if you're learning about all your sex ed, if, if your sex ed comes from porn and that's the yeah. only, you've only ever, ever seen your penis mm -hmm. and all the penises in porn, all of a sudden you feel like, ooh, <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Some of the other interesting things in that article were that nothing has been shown to increase penis size other than some dangerous surgeries that are sort of hit and miss as if you'll still have function afterwards. So all the stuff I was going in the mail anyway about magical gels and penis enlargers and exercise programs, none of that was going to do anything anyway, even if I did get it. And possibly hurt you. And definitely hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a gimmick. And, and so that's the kind of stuff like, I mean, you talk about actual harms that they could be teaching kids to avoid in sex ed. You could say, by the way, if you get malicious ads suggesting your penis is too small, that's a crazy lie. And also they'll just hurt you if you use them. None of them actually work. There's no such thing. Don't do it. So yeah, there's all sorts of good things they could be telling people that would actually help people even inside of the myth they're trying to perpetuate. They could still get a lot of that information and just don't. Yeah. And one of the things um, that we wanted Angel to come on today with us about was STIs and transparency. And a good segue to that is uh, one of the huge problems I had with uh, my daughter's education that came home just recently from school was they they still use STDs. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, because disease sounds so much more 
daunting and, and scary yeah. than STIs. And um, we actually went through her sheet <laughs> and marked out STD and put STI on all of her stuff. And I said, and if you get a bad grade for it, I'm going to put my number at the bottom of the sheet and you can have your teacher call me because <laughs> none of this stuff that they're teaching you is, is accurate. I was, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember that angel when she, when she came home with that and I was just mortified at the things that were on the sheet. And so we, we had to just go through and unteach yeah. everything. And, and like I said, that was my biggest issue was STDs. They still use STDs in school and it's, it is, it's a scare tactic and I get that. I, and it's not terribly effective. I don't know what the law is in Georgia specifically, but I know that of all the states, I think only 13 states, something between 13 and 16 or something, there's a requirement legally that the sex ed that's offered is medically accurate. So most states do not have a requirement yeah. for their sex ed to be medically accurate. Oh, and I'm sure if Georgia they- doesn't have to be. <laughs> well, how even yeah. could they? I mean, the sex ed at my school was taught by the gym coach. It was what they did yeah. during the off yeah. season. I, yeah. I can't imagine. I actually one time yeah. got marked off for saying that white blood cells fought infection instead of taking nutrients to the body because my coach doesn't know how blood cells work. And I had to get the book out and show him the actual <laughs> paragraph that said that he was wrong to get the points turned around. That's hard. So I can't imagine that most, much of what I got was medically accurate. But can you imagine if we had the same regulations around like math or biology? You know, like, right. oh, you know, go to your um, go to your math class and we actually don't have any requirement that it's mathematically accurate, but <laughs> have fun. Right. Uh, I think that might actually be true yeah. for biology. <laughs> I know one of my friends in North Carolina was at a school outside of the like a major city and they straight up got taught creationism next to evolution as follows the state requires me to teach you evolution but it's obviously bs so actually things happen like this and she did not believe in evolution as like a 24 year old adult so clearly they're not teaching science as science either so i i think there's a lot of that that leaves much to be desired in our education system unfortunately yeah. It's heartbreaking. And it's all very interrelated. Like the root cause of that is very similar to the root cause of some of the issues with sex ed. And the root Absolutely. Cause of some yeah. Of the, yeah. Like we're looking at very similar social erosions, you know? So yeah, I want to, I want to go about this from two different ways. I want to address the fact that STIs aren't as daunting as we've all been mm-hmm. taught they are. It's not going to ruin our lives. A ridiculous great percent of them that are absolutely curable within like a couple weeks at most. And I know we're going to get like hate mail for this, but that, that are not as big a deal as as we've been taught they are. Oh yeah, you're going to get... I would be really surprised if we get hate mail for this. I also want to go at it from the other end, whereas it doesn't matter how big a deal it is to you, if it's a big deal to me, the transparency still needs to be there. Yes. I, let me, I want to back up for a second. I just want to, I don't want to make any assumptions about where our, where listeners are coming from in terms of knowledge. Cause I know we're all kind of coming in, we're all in different places in our learning. Yes. So you made the distinction between STD and STI. And 
Um, language like this shifts regionally and shifts by age group and demographic. And so just to sort of make a distinction for folks who are listening, STD is sexually transmitted disease. STI is sexually transmitted infection. You'll sometimes hear these things interchangeably. Your local health department might say STD still. STI is probably more medically accurate. Um, most of these things are better classified as infections instead of diseases. Um, but a lot of times you're, the language isn't used. Um, the language STD or sexually transmitted disease was, as I think Michael suggested, very stigmatizing intentionally. And mm -hmm. Mandy also said like this is like a lot of it had to do with um, creating this monster under the bed narrative around STD, sexually transmitted infections. And and so when now we're saying STIs, we're not talking about something different than people who are saying STDs are talking about. We're talking about the same things. So I just want to make sure that, that we're like all on the same page so that people who are listening aren't like, you lost me at STD, STI, and then switch off. Yes, thank you. So. <laughs> I understand the difference that STD and STI are actually both used in the medical community to mean different things, where the STD is when the disease is active and causing um, a harmful outcome, and the STI is when you get whatever eventually could potentially cause a harmful outcome. So, you know, with HPV, which is now really a big thing people talk about a lot, you have an STI as soon as you have HPV, but you don't actually have an STD unless you develop cervical cancer from it. Symptoms. Yeah, the yeah. actual symptoms from it. And so STI is more inclusive, among other things. Yes. And, and, and there is yes. a distinction, but that distinction is in, is very specific in the medical community. Most folks are even when doctors are talking to their patients, mm -hmm. they're not using those distinctions the same way. No, they're not. Colloquial usage versus medical specific usage. Yeah. Yeah. But it is important to talk about part of the reason that this shift even became necessary or it became evident that we need to start using language differently is many, many, many STIs are asymptomatic for a very long time. Mm -hmm. If maybe ever. Sure. And so that's a two-edged sword. If you have an asymptomatic STI, like, why do you care, right? Well, asymptomatic for you and asymptomatic for the person you're sleeping with may be two different things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so something that I have that isn't giving me any symptoms or causing any problems for me may wreak havoc in my partner's immune system because their immune system is different than mine. Also, similarly, when we use a phrase like asymptomatic, a lot of times what we really mean to say is not showing symptoms I can detect. And so right. sometimes like things like hepatitis wreak havoc, like iceberg level beneath the surface. And what you see at the top is very, it's very unapparent to you that anything's going on. By the time you see symptoms, treatment will be far less effective. And so I am somebody who does a lot of early intervention education and testing and getting people mm -hmm. in and getting tested and that that's really the key to keeping these from being a big deal is getting tested early, getting treated early, being transparent, mm -hmm. because if you're waiting to see symptoms by the time you see them, all of these things become exponentially harder to treat. Mm -hmm. And can cause damage before you even see the symptoms. Like Yeah, like I said, that's sort of iceberg. Yeah. It's funny how, how people understand basic advice like uh by the time you're thirsty you're already dehydrated so you should never be thirsty you should always be in front of your thirst yes but they don't understand that advice for like stis yeah like you shouldn't wait until something horrible happens go get tested regularly if you're active well somebody made the yeah. analogy to me once like you don't wait to get the oil changed in your car when you drop your transmission on the side of the road like you keep up with it and so or just have physicals yeah like well <laughs> and so it really yeah. should be sti testing really should be part of your physical 
Yeah, it's crazy that it's conditional and it's not even always covered by insurance or it's only partly covered. And even when it is, it's usually like the big four or five. Yes. It's not like everything. Well, the CDC recommendations for STI testing don't even include everything. So yeah, right. I know my insurance, the way that we get around it, and my doctor taught me this, is that if I go in and I say, I have multiple partners, yes. I am high risk, mm-hmm. then they will test it because I get tested every six months and my insurance wanted to fight it at first. And she's... She said that if I come in and I tell her I have multiple partners and I am high risk, then my insurance covers it because I'm now high risk and it's medically necessary. Not everyone, not all insurances will respond the same way to that. Um, they may, they may do, they may cover some right. um, testing under high risk and then not others. Um, so I know a lot of couples or not couples, like folks in poly relationships will alternate their testing schedules intentionally so that someone in the polycule is getting tested every three months. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah. So the question was, what do I suggest people do like frequency for testing? Sure. And I was saying that if you think you're in a monogamous relationship, but you're still sexually active, and I use think you're in a monogamous relationship very specifically because... 40% of all people in monogamous relationships, one member of the group is cheating. Yes. So, yeah. So if you think you're in in a relationship that you believe is monogamous, but you're still sexually active in that relationship, my recommendation is at least once a year for a full panel test. And a full panel test means eight things. It's uh, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV... Hepatitis C, HPV, herpes, trichomoniasis. Wait, what, what's that trichomoniasis? What? What's the last one? Trichomoniasis. It's T-R-I-C-H something. It's a little bit like a bacterial infection, like bacterial vaginosis. Like the symptoms are very similar. I was going to say, is it like bacterial vaginosis? Okay. Yeah. And it's tr- it, the treatment is very similar, but it's still listed. Uh, it can be, if it's left untreated, it can do some damage to your reproductive system. And so, and penises can have that as well. Yes, I know they can spread it. So, like penis havers can spread yeast infections. So, I don't know what the impact on a penis haver is mm-hmm. with trichomoniasis. But how do you test a penis for? I don't know the answer to that. So, stuff. I don't know how the. Te- I think it's a blood test, um, but I'm oh. not sure. Uh, so, I again, that's one of these things that okay. asking if you're a penis haver who's getting tested, chatting with your doctor about it. Um, but if you're a vagina haver, definitely be having that conversation because just like with yeast infections, uh, a penis haver with yeast infection, that happens. It doesn't happen as often, but it does happen, but they can still spread it. Like what happens is we talk about yeast infections with, with people with vulvas, people with vaginas, and we do all that education there. And then you get couples where the, um, person with the vagina has the yeast infection and they keep passing it back and forth because only one of them is getting treated and the other, the, the, the individual with the penis also has it, but is it having the same symptoms or doesn't recognize the symptoms they're having as contributing as being from the yeast infection? So, but if you walk into a healthcare provider and you were to say, give me STI testing and you weren't specific, you'd probably get syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV. Uh, you might get herpes testing, maybe, but usually you have to ask. Um, and you might get hep C testing, but usually you have to ask. You're very unlikely to get HPV testing unless you ask. So you're definitely going to get syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, everything else. And with HIV, there's a lot of rules and it varies from state to state on like opting in, opting out of HIV testing. So making assumptions that telling your doctor or your nurse or your healthcare practitioner, you walk in, you say, oh, I want to get STA tested. And they test you and they say, oh, negative. Unless you've asked them specifically, what was I tested for? 
you don't know. So you have to ask, you know, you have to say, like, what are you testing me for? Are you testing me for everything? Talk to them about your sexual behavior, um, have conversations with them about what your risk level looks like, you know, and get that information. The other thing that doctors aren't, a lot of general practitioners or like um, urgent care offices, those kinds of places, um, unless you're going to like a Planned Parenthood or like an STI testing, like a infectious diseases clinic, unless you're going into an STI clinic, they don't have swabs. And so swab testing is a really big, important part of STI testing. But a lot of just your general doctor, like going into my GPs, I went into like my GP's office here and uh, my primary care. And I said, okay, like I want full panel. And I knew exactly what to ask for. And I asked for swabs and she didn't have the equipment to do swab testing. Yeah. And like a lot of cases go undiagnosed because people rely on urine and blood and miss the swab testing. And so if you aren't getting swab testing as part of your regular STI testing, maybe make at least once a year, make that stop to Planned Parenthood or wherever your STI clinic is and you're like close to you and get that swab testing or let your doctor know ahead of time. I'm gonna come in in a month and I'm gonna ask for swab testing and they'll order the stuff for you. But expect, they should just have it on hand. It's preventive testing. And I was surprised that they didn't, but, and I go to a pretty big doctor's office. I was really surprised, but. She didn't have it, but she said she'd order it for me. So it was just an interesting conversation. And the swab testing brings up a, another good segue into one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was HPV. Yes. And with how prevalent it is in Americans and humans in general, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Adults. And the ethical conundrum that we have as to whether we tell our partners that we could be a carrier or we could have it when such a high percentage of people do have it or are carriers. That's the, That was one of the big things I wanted to discuss tonight is what both of your thoughts are on ethically, whether you need to tell your partner that. Well, so just from like a pragmatic perspective, just so people following along can kind of get like a sense of things. We're talking about HPV. We're talking about human papillomavirus and it's the virus responsible for several different types of genital cancers and some throat cancers and also warts. Mm -hmm. But those are just a few of the many, many, many strains of HPV that a person could potentially have. Um, there is an HPV vaccine that you're eligible for up to age 45, but not every doctor is on board with that yet. Not every office has it. Not every insurance company is covering that yet. That's very new. Um, it used to be 19 was the age, ga age cap for the vaccine. Oh, you can also get it at pharmacies. A lot of pharmacies carry HPV vaccines. Oh, I didn't, I wonder if that's, I'll have to ask around here. That wasn't something here that, so I haven't heard that. Yeah, I just found that out here in Georgia or in, in, the, in the metro Atlanta area anyway. Target, CVS, Walgreens, they all carry HPV vaccines and you just, you go in and so it's not necessarily prescribed and they'll bill your insurance company for it. That's awesome. Oh, the other thing too, um, that you can just, cause people ask me a lot, what, what STIs can I get vaccinated for? You can also get, you can get vaccinated for HPV and you can also get vaccinated for hep A and hep B. And mm. currently those are the only three STIs that have vaccinations available. The HPV vaccination, at least as far as I know, does not cover all strains of HPV, but it does cover many of the strains that cause cancer, which is what we're most worried yes. about. Genital warts is annoying, but cancer is really what we're trying to, you know, that's the, the big fight. And um, <laughs> it is, well, it, it is. Say. 
right? Genital and, uh, warts are not going to kill you, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, you might feel like you're dying of embarrassment, but you'll move, you'll grow and, and move on. <laughs> so, and and they'll come and go. So, okay, so but then the way HPV and um and then we'll have this conversation about Hep C, but HPV. Mm-hmm. There's kind of two ways that that a person who has contracted HPV. So I don't like to say infected. I don't like to say that a person is infected with HIV or infected with HPV or infected with, I feel like the language is unnecessarily stigmatizing. I feel like it feeds into language about people being clean and dirty. Um, I feel like um, it really makes, it really puts people in a position that we don't put them in with other types of diseases. Um, mm-hmm. and so I like to say contraction. What, you've been infected with cancer? Yeah, right? Like, we just don't <laughs> say that to people. People will say you've been infected with the flu, though. I'm just, well, yes, you know. Stay away from me. You're infected. I don't want don't that. Don't go, yeah, um, don't go to work with the flu, right? And if then, you have the flu, you should be stigmatized and stay away from me. <laughs> no. Well, okay, maybe a little. But like, okay, but like, let's put a pin in that, because I actually do want to like loop back around to that exact conversation, because I was just having this in a poly forum on Facebook the other day. I almost broke my computer in half. Um, okay. So, but my thought about HPV, um, so you can have an, you can have a, and I'm going to use some medical language. Um, you can have an acute infection Mm -hmm. or you can have a chronic infection. And Mm -hmm. so an acute H, an acute HPV infection, um, looks like, uh, it clears up in about a year. So you test positive. You said test positive for it. Yeah. I just had to look this up again the other day, but there aren't tests for men still for that. Right. So you can't test it as a man. To be clear, there's no test for any person without a cervix. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I know that there's, there is some blood testing, but it's not great. It's not always accurate. Yeah, I've, I've been told it's not accurate. It's not always accurate. It's got, you can get false positives yeah. and false negatives. So if you were symptomatic, let's say that you had a person with a penis goes into their doctor and has genital warts. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to test, you know what that is, right? Like you can see right. that. And a blood test would probably come back. They would still do a blood test. And a blood test would tell them that this person has HPV. Is HPV the only way you can get genital warts? Yes. Okay. Yeah, all genital warts is... We didn't we didn't know that when we were kids. Like, when I was studying genital warts as yeah. kids, they just thought it was, like, a thing that you caught the way you got, like, warts on your fingers. Yeah. Right, and right. And now they know that it's not... I learned something new tonight. In, in, talking about bad, bad information, I had a, a girlfriend a while back before I was poly where... We knew she had HPV because we were dealing with all the possible precancerous cells on the cervix and everything. And then I got, and she had had that before I met her, and the, the cervix stuff. And then I got genital warts, which we didn't know at the time. We didn't know it was related. I'm sure it actually was out there, but we didn't know that. And she got like really mad at me and like didn't want me around because I was gross because I had this genital warts from somewhere. And she thought I was like oh. asking if it was like cheating on her and stuff. And now I know that I got it from her. Oh, <laughs> <I'm>, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I had, I had a client who, um, was having that conversation with me about herpes and they had called me, they had gone in for, for some, to the ER for some other thing, but they were like actively presenting symptoms of herpes. And so they went ahead and mm-hmm. like got tested while they were there so they could get meds. And the, um, the people at the ER like didn't really give them good information. And so they called me, um, because I had been, they'd been a client of mine for a long time and they called me and they said, Hey, I'm feeling kind of freaked out about this herpes thing. And I'm feeling very mad at my girlfriend. And I was like, well, yeah. Um, Okay, but also it's possible that you gave it to your girlfriend or it's possible that you both had it before you met each other. Like it's it's very yeah. possible that you'll never know where you got this from. Um, you know, unless you 
You, you know, like I, it's most people will not know most sexually active people, adults who have herpes or have HPV will not know, like be able to pinpoint exactly where it came from because we don't have great testing for either of those things. And so we talk about, let's go back to HPV specifically. We don't have great testing. We don't have reliable testing. Um, if you have a cervix, the most reliable test is thin prep, I think right now. That's, I think the best thing on the market. It's a type of pap smear. Mm -hmm. It's a little more of a pinch than a regular pap smear, but it's generally the same experience. So asking your your whoever's doing your pap smear is like, oh, what does that look like? What are you doing? And getting an idea of what the test looks like. And so they suggest women do that once a year um, because what they're testing for is cancer. Um, but it's cancer mm -hmm. caused by an STD. And that's actually information sure. we didn't have when we were kids. When we were, yeah. you know, when I was a kid and you went in because you had abnormal cells on your cervix, like nobody had connected at least to us, no. nobody had connected the dots that that was related to. Right. You did pap smears. You looked for that. It was a risk. We knew it was a risk. We knew it could give you yes. cancer, but we didn't know why, where it was right. coming like where from, you were the getting genesis, it. any of that structure. Yeah. And yeah. that it was We just thought that cervixes were just cancer prone. fickle Monsters. like that. It's very and they cancer prone just, organs. <laughs> yeah. They're cancer prone. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, it's interesting because the same people that didn't have that good knowledge, I mean, we're, we're now having kids and- some of us go out of our way to learn and do better and mm -hmm. and keep that education going. But the average person doesn't have a reason to keep learning this stuff. You know what I mean? Sure. Like they learn it when they learned it when they were school. Like I'm not going to keep trying to learn algebra. I don't ever use that information. You know, like I a, a lot of times right. people By the way, get algebra is amazing. I use it like every week. Just, just oh. anyone out there who's young enough to still be learning algebra, algebra is great. I, I won like at least three art awards with just algebra because I could do the math to figure out how the sculpture would balance and no one else could because they were like, what's math? And I was like, I don't. But I shouldn't disparage math, but I, I do think it's a good example in terms of like people <laughs> who know the value of it really know the value of it because algebra does really apply to all of us. Like there is something in all of our lives that a really good functional understanding of basic algebra would help. But most of us decided early on that it just didn't apply to us because it wasn't taught to us in a way that was relatable at all. So we got the mm -hmm. information and I was like, I don't need this to balance my checkbook. I'm good. And right. like, I was done. And so, and now here you are applying it in very untraditional ways. Maybe if I had been taught that I, that this would apply to my life in meaningful ways, I might've tried a little harder to access that information, even as a later adult. Now I just really rely mm -hmm. on other mathematicians in my life to help me out if I need it. But I, I guarantee I have a lot of missed opportunities that I'm not even aware of right. because I just didn't connect. And so I think sex ed kind of, we talk about, we're talking about these big gaps that we had, right? You know, in mm -hmm. sex ed, and now we're parents. And the schools aren't doing a better job. And so unless you've got parents who are actively going out there and trying yeah. to learn better information, kids aren't, they're, they're doing the same thing we did, Googling things and hoping their friends know and their friends don't know, by the way, you know, so, sure. no. so yeah. So, yeah. um, the other thing we talked about was, uh, or that I thought would be interesting to like bring up is H is hep C testing. I was saying that that's something that you may or may not get tested for if you went in and just generally said, test me for STIs. I would say that hep C is not universally considered an STI. And I say that to say that that's not the most common way people get it. Right. So it is sexually transmitted, but that's not the most common way people get hep C is sharing needles. IV drug use. Yeah, IV drug yeah. use. And so um, you tend to get a lot more hep C education and hep C testing education and prevention education in communities where there's a, the Venn diagram of IV drug users is higher. Like there's a higher concentration. <laughs> and so folks mm -hmm. who are getting, 
folks who are perceived to be needing like lower risk or standard sex ed don't always get that info, which is a real shame mm-hmm. because everybody deserves it. Right. Um, yeah. But if you're uh, the other reason that they don't always test for it is because there is an ethical conundrum in testing for something you can't treat for. So it doesn't mean that you can't treat for hep C. So let me, let me finish the whole sentence and then I want to hear what you think, Michael. There mm-hmm. is this thing that happens, and I don't know if it's at the insurance level or if it's at the provider level or maybe some combination of both. There's also a lot of grant funding issues around this. Hep C works similarly to HPV in the sense that you can have an acute infection or a chronic infection. So if you have an acute hep C infection, you have hep C for about six months. And then it's sort of your, your immune system does its thing and it sort of works itself out. If you have a chronic hep C infection, then after that six months, like the, the infection endures beyond that six month window. And the chronic hep C infection is the one that's going to mess up your liver. The chronic hep C infection is the one that's going to like eat your body alive. But when you're contagious, right? Like you're still giving it to people at that begin in that early window. Mm-hmm. A lot of times what's happening is people go in for testing they get a positive test result that first time and they don't qualify for treatment until the second window six months later or the second test six months later. Because we don't want to spend $19,000 on a six-month problem. Also, uh, if people are still actively using drugs, sometimes they will be denied treatment. Oh, wow. Because they're they're continuing to put themselves at risk. So a lot of insurance companies or grant provisions, a person will have to... have to pass a drug, a series of drug tests before they will qualify for treatment. And I, when I first learned that, I found it to be appalling that we would be denying (laughs) medical treatment. I was going to say, so let me ask you, let me interrupt real quick, Angel. Do, Do they do that with HIV testing? Like if you come back positive with HIV and if you're still sexually active, do they say you can't uh, treat for HIV? God, no. Because you're still putting yourself at risk? No, 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 no. Well, once you have HIV, you have HIV. Yeah, see, that's that's very different though. It's different. Yeah. So with, with, with hep C, um, the, the idea is that it's very expensive to treat and like I'm going to use air quotes for cure because it's more that you like you get to an undetectable rate and so you always have the antibodies in your yeah. system. But like- to treat hep C is very expensive. And so, and so you can get it again. And so somebody who continually puts themselves at risk could clear their infection up. And then in a year or two or six months or so, get a totally different infection, right? Like get, keep giving themselves mm-hmm. hep C um, instead of staying cleared up because they took themselves out of that risk, right? Like It's, they it's even up, possible, right? if I understand this correctly, it's even possible that a person that is actually self-clearing is getting reinfected. So it looks like they yes. have chronic, which is the life-threatening version, but they might actually just have repetitious infections. A series of, of acute infections. And yes. that's the that's the that's the, what the the insurance companies are claiming is we can't you can't prove you have the life-threatening version, so we don't. If want you're to still pay using. For it. Yeah. Right. So you have to prove, so not only do you have to prove that you have a chronic infection, but you also, so, so you have to have had it for so long, but then you also have to prove that you're, um, you have removed yourself from that risk. So if, so sometimes in it's lieu horrendous. of passing a drug test, they might, um, uh, accept being in rehab. So they might say, okay, give us rehab documentation and we'll, we'll start you on treatment. Or they might even connect you with rehab documentation. They, um, in lieu of the six month window, you might be able to say, oh, I know for a fact that I had a partner who tested positive this many months ago. And if you can provide some sort of documentation around that, sometimes they can. So sometimes there's, for people who are like really sure that like, this is what they have and they have an infection. There are some occasional programs that will help work around this. 
but the fact that the workaround even needs to exist, I really had a hard time with when I was first learning about it. Like, well, our entire medical system is fundamentally immoral. Like, well, it's just fucked. I mean, let's let's use the real word here. <laughs> I, I'm pretty happy with fundamentally immoral personally. Uh, the, the problem is we're one of the only. I don't even know. There needs to be new terms. You know, things we need new terms for is for stigmatization. Is we need a new term for what would have used to have been first world because there's no version of that term that isn't basically problematic, privileging and damaging to other groups. Industrialized is just as bad because they talk about developed and undeveloped and it's not anyway, but, but what you would call a developed country or a first world country, basically all of them have universal healthcare with the exception of America and America's healthcare outcomes as a country rate, something like 26th in the world, despite being the richest and country in the world, and despite spending more per head on healthcare by two to three times as much to the closest person. So, you know, you even have things like people just straight up saying heads of major companies that make medicine straight up saying, we're not in the business of helping people, we're in the business of making money. And Mm -hmm. that we do that by helping people sometimes, but that's not what we're here for. Yeah. And so our, our system is fundamentally ethically bankrupt. Yes. Because if you cure diseases, you can't make money off of them anymore. I don't believe in though that, that people say that all the time. And that's a conspiracy theory to me because I agree. The, the person who invents the cure makes a sh- ton. The people who are currently have it aren't going to be the ones inventing it for sure. So like whatever the one company is who's selling the best HIV treatment right now is not going to develop the cure. But the the next company down that has no HIV treatments would totally develop the cure because they would <laughs> yeah. make a fortune yes. before it came off the market. Um, yes. Like in a funny equivalent to that, um, Kodak actually invented the first digital camera. And when they showed it to them, they said, well, this doesn't, this would, we only make, we make all our money on film. So they put it in a vault and refused to produce it. And then 10 years later, someone else invented it and almost bankrupted them. So like, for sure, someone like, like the company <laughs> itself will do that weird evil thing where it puts the good tech in a vault and goes, no, we don't want people to have that where they're yes. addicted. But other people will still invent that thing. Somebody's so going to come along be- into it. Yeah, yeah, I don't believe in, in that conspiracy. But but so there's two different ethical – this is funny because this is two different things we talk about being unethical slamming into each other. Because the other one is how we treat drug use. Yes. That we, we know that drug use in America is basically cultivated to control certain populations. That we know that the answer to drug use is legalizing drugs, having the government produce them, using the tax revenue to build – actual recovery centers destigmatizing their use treating it as a disease like and we know that because it's worked literally just worked in countries that have used that model so we just we know that that is the thing that solves it we know that people turn mm-hmm. to drugs when they lack human connectivity being accepted and feeling like part of the community and we know that our approach to doing like what you're talking about like you must be in rehab to even get help it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. It makes them feel yes. hopeless. And that's what turns them to drugs. That in fact, getting this chronic hep C and then being told, well, only if you can do these things that to them seem impossible, like get off drugs for like, six to 10 point? months or whatever, then we'll help yeah. you. Otherwise, we're just going to let you just die. And in the meantime, we're not going to help you pay for it. Our medical system doesn't care if you have the money to pay your bills. It's hugely socially isolating. And then you use the language of SCD and SCI to it further make them, you know, stigmatize the people around yes. them so that they're lacking human connectivity and, and even in basic touch. I mean, it's, it's, it is a perfect storm of all of the horrors of our society visited upon one particular yeah. individual. So I think your outrage is appropriate. And let's just even talk about the initial point of outrage, which is why the meds cost so much to begin with. There is sure. no 
morally excusable reason for any medication to cost yeah. that much money. Like it's, it's, yeah. that's outrageous. Like right. Amer- Americans again, pay 10 times as much per the further drugs as any other country in the world. We are the, yes. we, we support the research of all other countries drugs by paying price gouging insanity because we have no single payer healthcare to negotiate for us. Exactly. Um, I know one of the things that you uh, said that you wanted to talk about was the ethics of STIs in poly communities and in, in poly relationships and sort of disclosure conversations and how to have that, how to have those discussions, especially when we're coupling those concerns with things like unreliable testing and unreliable treatment and unreliable right. information to begin with. Like, are people doing their best, you know, or whatever? So I think maybe we could spend a minute just sort of having that conversation too. Please. Um, I get this question a lot, a lot. That, well, okay, first, I want to talk about the narrative that we get fed that monogamy is inherently safer than non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Yeah, and so <laughs> I, I, I just, I saw this on Facebook the other day and I flagged it because I was going to go back and argue with the people that were having the conversation and then I realized my sanity meant that arguing with them was not in, in the cards for me that day. Um, but it was like this poster and it was like, you guys have probably heard this, the statistics on like, if you have sex with two people and they have sex with two people and they have sex with two people. And sure. so this idea that, that then you've, and you get to the it's end like of that little. It's like having sex with everyone they've ever had sex with. With, yeah, sure. with 40,000 people. Yeah. And so, so you've effectively had sex with 12,000 people, you know, or whatever. And it was people who were in a sex ed community that were like, really, ex- they like thought this was great messaging. Those people need more algebra. And, right. There it is. The argument for algebra. <laughs> um, just another one. Put it, put an notch on the board. Um, <laughs> But, and I, and from... Actually, that's statistics, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, There's which a lot of I should... in statistics, but... Yeah, I know, which is why I got a C in statistics. <laughs> um, just once. <laughs> I, I got, I went back and did it again and got a B plus, so... Because <laughs> that, would, that would only be true if transferal rates were 100%. The yes. only The only way that that right. two by two by two by two thing would hold is, is if, if transferal it rates for the... Dis- yes. Right, was 100%. And that's not how things work, but, but I can, at all, but I can see how if you're very prevention minded, so there's kind of two ways that messaging works. Uh, you either get prevention focused messaging or you get, uh, approach. So like avoidance messaging or approach messaging. So, um, avoidance messaging is prevention messaging. It's don't do this thing because this will be the negative outcome or it's avoid this behavior. If I want to be thin, avoid eating cake or whatever. Right. Or it's, Mm -hmm. um, an approach message would be do this thing for that outcome. So the outcome is here. And in one case, we're telling you what not to do, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the other case, we're telling you like how to. And so mm-hmm. the, my my messaging tends to be approach oriented. Here are the ways that I, like in both cases, we want people to have sex lives that are as safe as they want them to be, right? Like say, like everybody determines their own level of safety. Everybody determines the level of risk that they're willing to expose themselves to, the level of risk I'm comfortable with might not be the same level you're comfortable with. We have those conversations. Okay, so I know that I want to, I'm uncomfortable with a certain level of risk. So I can either say, well, to get there, I avoid A, B, C, D, whatever, right? And I have all these rules. Or I can say, to get there, I know I use more protection. I do testing and I think about the positive steps I can take. Just quick, we we know that avoidance does not work, that humans do yes. not learn avoidance behaviors, <laughs> yeah. that yes. it is patently impossible. It, it's like the don't, it, it works exactly like the don't think about a white elephant. And then everyone and then thinks all about a white, white elephant. elephant. 
Yes, that that we know that anytime you try and teach someone don't do X, the rate of doing X actually goes up just 100% of the time in every study, in every group of humans, don't do X increases X. Abstinence-only education increases sex over no education. That if you really want an abstinence yes. sex ed, ed, you should just kill sex ed entirely. That yeah, the just don't do system it. <laughs> just straight up makes it worse. That, that, yes. that it makes everything in there worse. That that you can, but you can teach humans to do something else. You know, so even if it's a, a like obtuse, like if you were trying to teach someone in your cake metaphor not to eat cake, you shouldn't tell them don't eat cake. You should no. be like apples are the best. If, if, you, if you really so, yeah. are rich and have a great ability to get the best food, you eat apples. I mean, apples are for the best people. Like exactly. that, yes. that you could actually teach people. You could sell. You could sell that. You could convince people that that's a, a you know what they exactly. want to do. Yes, yes, exactly. Bingo. And um, and so that's the uh, when we're so the the whole like uh, the more people you have sex with, the more disease you're coming in contact with, or something like this idea that like more people is bad. Right. It's this just because, again, we sell these sort of false narratives around monogamy. We sell monogamy mm -hmm. as sort of this false promise of security mm -hmm. and sure. monogam telling people to just pick a person, let that be the one person until they die. is just an easy way to get out of giving people the education they really deserve. <laughs> right. Like, OK, well, I told you what to do. And technically, technically. If we all only had sex with one person your whole life and they only had sex with you their whole life, that would be a very risk-free sexual relationship. It's a very closed uh, environment. Yeah, so. like, yes. Yeah, well... <laughs> well... We're not talking about in enjoyment, Mandy. We're talking yeah. about... Sorry. We're talking about that in the ideal system, and in yeah. the system they're pitching... And the, you would yes. be safe if the system worked as advertised. As pitch, as right, advertised. Well, I just want to add that footnote that it would be boring <laughs> it would as be, well. I agree. <laughs> and, be, and because most people agree with you, most people don't do that. <laughs> so because most people hear that and go, no, nah, it's not for me. Um, and so what we don't do is it's, la it's lazy. It's just lazy educating. It's just... Well, yes, that's technically true, but that's not the sex people are having, right? Um, yeah, and so, right. so first, I... I what what I like to throw back out when people are saying, oh, well, just like you see these comments come up in poly forums all the time about like, oh, well, you're having sex with a ton of people. And so somebody's going to get herpes or, whatever. you know, someone will make some derogatory STI comment. Mm -hmm. And it's usually some monogamous person that wandered into the wrong group troll <laughs> or whatever. I'm like, how did you end up here? And and um, or their partner encouraged them to come because they thought it would make Polly look sexy. And boy, were they wrong. And, uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, if you are thinking this is a public service announcement to all partners who are trying to get their partners into Polly, if you're thinking that getting your partner to Polly by having them join a Polly group on Facebook is a good idea, I am here to tell no. you it is not. <laughs> um, and so anyway, they come in and they go, oh, well, you know, the more partners you have, the more likely they are to get a ton of STDs. And what we're seeing is not only is that not true, but specifically to ethical non-monogamy, we do all these studies and they're showing that people in ethically non-monogamous relationships are actually less likely than their monogamous counterparts to spread STDs around the group or STIs around the mm -hmm. group yeah. because they are... I think you've actually stated that before. Michael. Yeah. Oh, have you, Michael? Yeah. Well, I what I've said before is I've said that the risk of... STI transmission is lower if you use barriers responsibly every time than it is if you're in a relationship with someone who's cheating on you and you don't know. No and that since 40% of people are cheating in monogamous relationships, the actual transmission rates are going to be 
I mean, it depends on what, you know, the person's doing and which, which of those you're in, but it's, it becomes very much like a, what is that? Like a, like a Russian roulette with, with yes. getting the SDIs thing, where you got a 60% chance to get off scot-free and a 40% chance to be in a major danger zone versus yes. a guaranteed low risk situation, but not a no risk situation, but a low risk situation. Exactly. Which is basically what Angel just said. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. She, so, I, think I did not know, which is exciting to me, which is that in the communities that, that, I mean, I, I was just sort of, guessing from that 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 made the transmission rates in the two different groups similar and what i'm hearing is no that it's actually even actually that's enough to tip the scales so that the average just enough yeah and it and that's and that's got a lot of that has to do with not just using is it it slight sorry i want to know is it 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 is slight slight. it's very slight slight yeah so it's about the same but slightly more yeah some some studies will show that it's about the same and then some studies show a slight advantage to the um non-monogamous folks so sure, it just depends sure. on what but, but it's you're looking like, at but it's in like five percent or something that's like marginal yeah. for most study type reasons okay so then yes. i was saying it right to begin before but that's still fun to know but I, yeah I, well, it uh, is I, fun so come out about the same mathematically yeah and so what what you're Wait, looking at though is <laughs> i was gonna say that's stats. <laughs> that's us that's my guys stats um <laughs> so what you what you have there though is a group of people who go out of their way to have conversations like the one we're having. Yeah. People who are going out of their way to, um, continue education, get tested, to have continuing education, to use barriers more frequently, even if not every time, much more consistently, um, or much more intentionally when they're not using barriers, that's with much greater intention. Um, they're better about having conversations around activities. And and also there, the idea that we have about what protected sex looks like is maybe a little bit different and more, um, robust in non-monogamous communities. So we are having conversations about prep and we're having conversations about um, testing and those kinds of things. And so for people who don't know what prep is, prep stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis and it's a pill you take once a day to prevent HIV. And so um, I just wanted to, I used the word prep and some people are like, what's that? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's highly effective and it's amazing. Yeah, they're getting visuals of you like setting out like gloves and and barriers and stuff instead of the drug that you're talking about. (laughs) But because we continue this education and we're more vocal about it and the conversations do happen, we do know more about like prep and dental dams and vaginal condoms and, you know, things like that, that maybe closed-minded, conservative, monogamist Joe Smith down the <laughs> down the road doesn't know. Well, sure. I would also say that even really open-minded monogamous folks aren't getting that information the same way. Well, um, and why would they right. be getting the information? The problem is in that context is that or they don't think they need it. Well, well, right. They don't think they need it is the upshot. They think they've already got to the safety zone. So if you're in the safety zone, why would you need it? And even what yeah. we know about cheating says that most cheating is sort of an unplanned thing that people don't yes. really think they're going to do even if it's continuous they're not really you know and then they think the person they're cheating with even if it's continuous is safe because of it's course also monogamous. Part of why they're with them yes. yeah, they're, they're like monogamous <laughs> cheating which is part yeah. of the reason that you run into the weird thing where uh people will be like willing to cheat with you but then when they find out you're poly they're not into it because they yep. the they're still at a, a sort of a sub monogamy well, it's not, it's not it's that but also there's like this sub monogamy that people who are cheating that i know think like they're going to end up together like they're like I'm going to be mad if you're cheating with somebody else too, though. Like if you were, yes. Like I know you're with your your man, but if you want somebody else, I'd be really upset at you because I'm, I'm supposed the one to you're be cheating the sad with. bitch. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. There's this like there's like this inherent layers of because there's something about monogamy tends to send this message that the way your partner feels about you is directly relevant 
to your value. Like it's, it's part of your values mm-hmm. assessment. Mm-hmm. So like having somebody who's willing to be in a monogamous relationship with you is part of your value, part of your stock as a human. Yeah. And so you're, you'll, you'll find that side piece, but if they're like, it's special when it's just the two of you, but if it's, right. if it's you and like four other people, all of a sudden your stock goes down. If you're going, if you're playing yeah. by monogamous rules, right? Like those sure. are just, it's just a different yeah. setup. Well, and there's also a lot of uh, stuff on the, on the part of the, the person who is on the, who's cheating with you that the idea that you can only love one person at a time. Like if you yes. see that horrible thing, like if one person is in love with two people, they were never in love with the first one the at first all or one. something first like that. One, yeah. It's ridiculous. And and so, well, and so, but that's a lot of times when you talk to people who are in a relationship with a person with their partner, they're saying, oh, well, they're going to leave them for me eventually, like, because obviously, if you really love them, they wouldn't be with me to begin with, so I'm the one they love, but then if they find out there was someone else, then like, oh, well, they don't love me. Yeah, uh, and so... Mm-hmm. So even in that context where you're cheating, you're like, well, they're cheating, but just with me because they're super loyal and it wasn't that they're a bad person. <laughs> it's that I'm amazing and yes. they had no choice but to, only do it with to, me. to re, you know, change their life to be with me. Yeah. Well, and so they're less likely to use barriers. So we go back to the STI Correct. conversation. Right. You're in that. And, and the other thing, too, is a lot of folks who are sort of in that monogamy space, they are still they're operating under the rules we talked about where sex is about procreation. And so they're not mm-hmm. thinking about sex, sexual risk. They're not thinking about the STI part of sexual risk. They're thinking about the procreative part of sexual risk. Right. And so if one or so the other of the them is on birth well. control. Yeah. And so if everybody's on birth control, we don't think about all the other things that could maybe go wrong here. Or, right. you know, so you also see this um, STI uh, increase, increase STIs in older communities, uh, like elderly sure. communities. Right. Because they can't have uh, kids. So. They can't have kids and they're not thinking about the ways that this conversation applies to them. And so they're with divorce rates and people living longer. And so people are having these whole second dating lives. And so they're going back into these dating communities. And so you see retirement homes that will have these big flare-ups of STDs. And you'll see these, um, like uh, the Villages uh, is a community near Orlando. And it's a big, big retirement community here in Florida near Orlando. Mm -hmm. And they were like newsworthy level um, STI rates in this retirement community a few years back because of this, like this idea that um, these folks just, the information wasn't applying to them. So I did want to mention though, we were, so we were talking about disclosing, like how you were having this conversation and what is your sort of ethical obligation to disclose. And I think that, I think that this is a, this applies to everybody, whether your relationship is monogamous, quote unquote, or whether it's non-monogamous, I think consent, in my opinion, consent requires that, that disclosure. So I, I think if you, if you know, but I also think it applies to like, if I know I have the flu, Mm -hmm. I, I am responsible to tell my partner like, hey, we have a date night coming up, but I have the flu and you have, you're going to miss like four days of work if you go on this date with me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it applies mm-hmm. to, to all of those things. So we haven't actually brought this up in a long time, but this concept that I've used before and I updated a little bit, but basically it's RINC, which is robust, informed, non-coercive consent. That it's yes. only consent if it has all those features. And part of the robust part of the feature, if we, we described this in that whole episode on it, is that you tell people anything you think that they could possibly want to know or that you would want to know. So if you can either yes. imagine them wanting to know it or you would want to know it, then you have to tell them or it's not really informed consent. So if you're if you would want to know if your partner had an STI that, you know, is potentially transferable or even if you just imagine they might, which let's be honest, you every like a lot of people would want to know. Like you yeah. know that a lot of people would want to know. Then 
if you're not doing that, then you're failing to actually give them consent in what they're getting into and in their own risk levels. And even if they're ridiculous, I mean, you want to know that up front, to be honest. Like, if they have no idea yeah. how risk works and you tell them, like, okay, well, I have, like, I've told, yeah. so I had a, I have a partner for, you know, I long, one of my partners that has, like, cold sores, right? And I have no cold sores for 11 years. You know, we're very careful. I don't even have the, what is it, the, the, the antibodies. Yeah. So, like, when they do the test for cold sores, by the way, if you don't know, those, I mean, you guys know, but for the audience, they don't know. Um, the reason that it's often unreliable is because you can have the antibodies from exposure without ever even having it because your body could have yes. developed the antibodies to protect you, and you might not even mm-hmm. have it. And the only thing they can test for is the antibodies, not the, not the infection itself. Yes. So I don't, even, I don't even have the antibodies. So, like, 100% have never possibly had it because I would have to have some antibodies for after 11 years of exposure. Like, it's not like you can handle that very well if you're very responsible about it. And I've told new people that I was thinking about dating about that. And like, oh, I don't want to date you if your partner has that. And I'm just like, okay, well, then I don't want to date you either because you don't even know how SDIs work. You're a close-minded. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you're not willing to learn. Like, yeah. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's, a, that's such an important statement, though, this idea that you would want to know early. People get so despite being in non-monogamous communities, a lot of us are still coming from or or shedding off like monogamy programming programming. And one of the major keys of monogamy programming is a scarcity mindset. So it's this Mm -hmm. idea that any potential partner is somebody I have to flesh out because what if another one doesn't come along? Mm -hmm. And that like Mm -hmm. scarcity mindset tells me that I might want to not tell you everything you want to know up front. I might want to let you get attached first because then you might be sure. more understanding or then you might be more. So I can conversation. get you hooked first and then maybe you'll yes. stay. And it doesn't feel um, inherently unethical, unethical to it sort of to give me. people that bait and switch. Yeah, that's just me? <laughs> no, I think it, I think it is too, but I, I know that. But well, I think when we stop and think about it, it's unethical. Well, especially because that is designed to hold on um, NRE, right? The whole idea there yes. is to get you at the peak of NRE where you're making irrational, bad, self-destructive decisions yes. and then tell you something that's bad and hope that the NRE will push you past it. The badness. Yeah. And well, and that's every every monogamous narrative, romance narrative is that. It's don't divulge too much too soon or sure. you know, overshare. It's don't... Um, don't show all your cards. It, it treats romance and dating like a game, and you want to not show every card you have. <laughs> it treats them like a trap, like not yeah. even a game. You're like your plan is to get that dude in your bear trap, and when he's bleeding to death on the ground, then you've got him. Like, like oh, by the way, I had get cold sores. Yeah, like <laughs> so. I, well, that it falls in line with the like you see in the forums. Um, when you go on a first date, when do you tell people you're poly? Yeah, I was thinking of that uh, metaphor too. Before you go on the fucking date with <laughs> yeah, them, why are you on a date with them if they don't know you're poly? Come on, man. Right. But those always make well, me laugh. Like just once a week, me. you see it in a poly yes. forum. By the way, but I get then, this a lot. Then people will reject me. Yeah, I get, I get, yeah. I get that sort of response a lot. People will say, "Well, this thing you've asked me to do causes me not to get dates," and I'm like, "That doesn't tell you whether or not it's ethical, right? Yeah. Like the amount of yeah. dates you get off of doing something is not how you check an indication of its ethical, ethical it value." <laughs> well, that's but I get so my work. I do a lot of relationship coaching, a lot of relationship consulting. The huge concern is getting dates. Like, am I going to get people to continue to date? I don't want to be rejected. Like that's the bottom line is how can I do this? And how can I get this? How can Jeez. I get this person that's terrible. to do this thing I want them to do that they clearly Ugh. don't want to do so that they don't reject me? 
How can I convince them? And I'm like, listen, yeah. don't, don't you want to know right? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> don't you want to know right up front if they if you are if you're getting ready to go have coffee with this super hot person that is like totally 100% compatible with you, but they would under no circumstances want to be polyamorous? Why would you set yourself up for that? Right. Why? Are you wasting either of your time? And, well, and, the and if you're scared way. of rejection, I promise it's coming. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. And it's going to be <laughs> way worse. Like that, that that's the end of that movie. It doesn't there's not a fairy tale where they're going to uh, I I have done this and I think a lot of us have this in our dating history where you think that you can love someone into like loving mm-hmm. you back or into like into feeling, accepting something. Into accepting something about you that they just don't want to yeah. accept. Or you've had people who have kind of tried to do that. And I know in my more insecure younger days, like I can think of very specific people that I thought, I'll just keep sleeping with this person and they'll want to date me. Or I'll just like whatever. And I and you go kind of go down this road and it's, it doesn't, no, people tell you who they are. And so yeah. I, I have definitely, when I talk to people about disclosure and we talk about STDs, but like with anything, if you think it's a big deal and you're asking yourself, when should I have this conversation? I'm going to tell you to have it sooner You should have already had it. Yeah. Or at yep. least sooner than later, right? Yeah. Like there is, with STIs, there does kind of, it does sort of assume a potential sexual relationship. And so it may not be the conversation everyone wants to have on their first date. Yeah. Well, I, I think STIs you can wait for, partly because I don't think first dates automatically eventually mean sex. Like a lot yes, of times first right. dates for me is we end up being friends or something. So for sure, I think that STIs, you can wait until there's like that's on the horizon. A little bit more. Yeah. But, if you see that coming, for sure. But then there's the flip side of people who like, you know, they kiss after the first date and maybe you didn't mention that you get cold sores. And then there's this like, did you bait and switch me? <gasps> you did you expose me? me? Because there's this misunderstanding sure. about how frequently they've already been exposed to herpes and how, you know, or whatever, right. how many people they've kissed that have herpes that don't know it or whatever. And so because of misunderstandings, when you do eventually disclose it, you know what I mean? Like there just tends to be... Well, and there are some good tricks there, though, too. So, like, if you don't want to disclose on the first date, just be the kind of person that doesn't kiss on the first date and tell them that up front. Exactly. Just say, like, I don't kiss on the first date. You don't have to explain why. Enough people do it that it's not weird. And then after you've had a couple of dates or whenever you're ready to do kissing, you can say, well, before that, I want to disclose this because even though it isn't an issue, some people think it is. And I want to make sure that you have informed consent when you're deciding to kiss me. Exactly. That would be a lot more fun if you have it. Yes. Is great because I was gonna I was gonna draw the comparison to HPV. Yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. because so many people you know are exposed to herpes and cold sores. That do we really need to disclose that? Yeah, I say if you know you have it, then the answer is yes. I say if you know that you have herpes, if you know that you have like if you know that you have HPV, like an active HPV infection in your body and you're mm-hmm. aware of that, I think you are responsible to give that information. I think if you suspect you might have been exposed, okay, but you also, then that's a different kind of conversation. I suspect I yeah. might have been exposed is different than I actively have this, right? Well, and I think you should still have that conversation that like yes. if one of your partners has just recently like, you know, done the thing where they call you and go, I just found out that I was diagnosed with this. I think, you know, you should say that, but you should also say it in like that way, which is I haven't been diagnosed. My partner has the transferal rate is X, you know, there's no, yes. I have no, I'm asymptomatic at the moment. So chances are not great, but you should know that this one step removed from me is a risk. Exactly. So I tend to like when people talk about, oh, how do you bring it up? 
I tend to start with my own self-disclosure because I've noticed that that's very disarming for other people. Mm -hmm. um, so the standard narrative tends to be somebody asking their partner, are you clean? Which makes me want to <laughs> like uh, put needles in my eyes. Yeah, never um, ask anyone that, by the way, guys. If you're, Yeah, because nobody's going to say anything. Ask, no, I'm... Well, you might I'm get dirty, no, I'm I'm super gross. dirty, but I think that's not Showered the answer. this morning, yeah. thanks. I know, right? Or maybe <laughs> dirty means something different. Um, <laughs> right. But um, I'm clean? No, I'm yeah, not clean. Yeah, right? Are, <laughs> have you met I me? I don't think anyone's going to answer that way to an STI inquisition, though. I think yeah, if you're kidding. like, I'm like, checking to see if you have any STIs because I'm clean. Are you? No one's going to yeah. go, oh, no, I'm dirty. Like, no. sexily. <laughs> I, yeah. <And> gonna... <laughs> well, I might, just to be silly, but I... <laughs> right. No, the average person is going to be offended by the question. So, cause you've got two scenarios. You have a scenario, well, three, you have a scenario where a person knows that they are negative for everything. You have a, a scenario where the person knows they are positive for something, or you have a scenario where the person just doesn't know. Most common scenario. Yes. And because the person just doesn't know, it's going to be very easy for them to lie to you because you've just made them sound like a greasy dirt box like sure. by saying, are you clean? Right. right? Like, so you've, you've invited them to lie mm -hmm. to you because sure. you've, you've put them on the spot. It's embarrassing to say to somebody, I don't know when the last time I got tested. I don't know. Was. Yeah. And so I, I tend to start by saying, and I, it does make it easier that I teach sex ed. It does make it easier sure. that I work in prevention. And so it's a very natural segue for me to say, Oh, because of the line of work that I do. But even if I don't want to use my line of work as a hook, uh, because there's like a lot of reasons that I might not want to bring that up on the first date, <laughs> um, <laughs> I I might say, um, you know, because I'm non-monogamous or because my health matters to me or whatever, but I will start mm -hmm. the conversation by saying, you know, I'm, this is a really important part of my healthcare is to have regular testing and have regular testing for everything. And I personally carry my results in digital format in my phone and I, Ooh, will, I have my chart. Yeah, I have my chart. <laughs> I, I will offer to show it to people if they want to see it, but I will say like, this is the last time I was tested. This is what I was tested for. These were the results of those tests. I know that I'm a carrier for HSV-1, which is herpes. And in my case, those symptoms are oral. So I get cold sores um, and I've been getting them since I was a kid and I'll have that conversation and say, you know, like, this mm -hmm. is what that is. And if you have questions about how that's spread and most people are like, oh yeah, my cousin gets cold sores or I get cold sores or whatever. And they don't care. But sometimes people care and I'm like, all right, this has been fun. We're done. And, mm -hmm. and I know those aren't for me, but, but I, if I start, it makes it so much easier for the other person to say. Uh, so do you think that that works easier for you though, because you do also have something, but something that's not particularly problematic to disclose? Because I feel like if you're like, yes. I do all this regular testing and I do all these things and I have nothing, it's still hard. Like, it doesn't necessarily soften the conversation for the other person to turn around, especially if they have something and yeah. go, well, Oh, you have nothing? Well, uh, got, I have this. And I think yeah. if you have nothing, I think that, I think if you're currently in a space where you're testing negative across the board, I think you might say, I'm currently test. I currently, like, my most recent test was negative for everything. Because... Mm -hmm. You don't know if you're still having t sex between that test or if you, you know, depending on window period. Right. Yeah. You might even say like, you know, I have, par I have some partners who, you know, don't always test negative for everything. And sure. so this is a very important part of our lives. So there is that sense of, mm -hmm. but even if nobody, you know, tests positive for anything, I think just yeah. being the one to bring it up, it mm -hmm. lets people know you're willing to have the conversation. If you're bringing it up in a way that's very, um warm and open even if it might make the other person feel a little weird to be like well 
I'm really glad. And I, and I, I gotta say, if people bring it up before I do, I do feel like they've let me off the hook a little bit because I do want to tell them, Hey, I have HSV. I even, I do this for a living and I don't always know when the right time to like, like, sure. Oh, Hey, pass the roasted Brussels sprouts. And by the way, like, I don't know when the, you <laughs> right. know, there's not like oh, a natural. <laughs> I like to ask people, it's like, instead of having the conversation, ask them when they want to have the conversation. Yeah. That's a really good one. That's one I use often is I'll say something like, Hey, at some point, I would like to have the conversation about like STIs and prevention and that sort of, you know, and like for like, you know, I don't want to necessarily have it right now. I think it's a little bit early maybe, but whenever you're ready and you think it would be fun to have, like I'm into having that conversation. I love that. And if, that gives them if that they're option. never, no, I think that's great. I do think that if they're never, if they don't ever bring it up on their own, you might say, you know, or I'll touch base with you, you know, yeah. After a couple of days. That gives them an opportunity to run out and get tested real quick before sure. they talk to you about it, too. So. <laughs> like, oh, shit, Michael wants to talk about that. Let me you, make you an appointment. Keep, you can keep asking that same question, though, too. Like, the next yeah. thing, so then you can be like, hey, so I'd still like to have this conversation at some point. Do you know yeah. when that might be a good time? Yeah. Like, it's not like it's, it doesn't close so. the door because you ask once. You don't have to then be like, now I have to wait. So another thing, another thing I do too is kind of give people permission to not know the answer to the question. Like if I'm saying, sure. "Oh, the last time I got tested was this," like, do you do you remember the last time you got tested? And I'll say, like, I know that not everybody remembers the last time they got sure. tested, or that not everybody has access to regular testing, or that. And I and again, we're all in this position where we're maybe have a little bit more information than the average bear. So we can mm-hmm. all lean on like, I realize I may be a little bit more hyper aware of this than other people might be. And so this yeah. stuff is t- top of mind for me in ways it might not be for other people. And so I definitely, as part of that conversation, I give people permission to sort of say, you know what, actually, I think I need to dig through some records or I'm not really sure, or mm-hmm. I know I got tested, but I don't know what for. And yeah. nobody from the doctor's office called me. So that means good news, right? Like they, to have that confusion because I know that the system is flawed and I know that people don't mm-hmm. have that information. And so if I create a space where people feel like they have permission to not know. Mm-hmm. I still think it's super messed up that you have to know to ask for the whole panel that if you just ask it for is. STI testing, you won't get the whole panel, you have mm-hmm. to know. And then as Manny said, my doctor is the same thing. Whereas I told her, yeah, I'm, I'm poly, I'm non-monogamous. Therefore, I've been with some people since the last time I was in here. And so she flagged me as high risk. And even then it only got half covered. And I had to pay the other half of labs. And I ended up with like a not a horrible, but like a $200 bill for like the eight yeah. things I got tested for. And, you know, but it's definitely, like, definitely tell your doctors you're high risk when you go yeah. in to see if you go, if you go to your GP to get tested, you know, mm-hmm. or your, your, your gynecologist or sure. any type of office doctor, go tell them I'm high risk. They, a lot of times will go ahead and test you for more things because you say you're high risk mm-hmm. or tell you to go more, you know, to get tested more often. Yeah. They'll um, give you some If guidance. you're not honest with anybody, be honest with your fucking doctor. <laughs> Also, if you're in a position where, so I get a lot of phone calls and I I have a feeling you're going to have a lot of listeners who are in this boat where they don't have access to a primary care. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they're relying on rapid testing or they're relying on like free clinics. A lot of free clinics do not do full panel testing or free clinics that offer full panel testing might offer them only to like high risk populations or might only offer them to certain demographics or might only offer them to, you know, whatever. So there may be limitations on those offerings that don't apply to you. But what you can do is go get tested for what they do offer. And then Mm -hmm. you're only paying for one or two tests at a doctor's Mm -hmm. office as opposed to, well, they don't have everything and I need everything. So I'll pay $400 over here as opposed to like, 40, you know, so, and that's some people just don't think to do it that way. 
Well, and you can use barriers also as well as like a, it's like a, a part of the thing that makes the conversation easier is you can also say things like, well, if you've only been tested for these four things, we can still have very barriered sex, for instance, yeah. mm-hmm. which we were going to do anyway, because I just met you and I don't know you well enough to try right. to Because it's the first date. But yeah. So, it lowers the stakes still, right? So they don't have to say, oh, well, exactly. I've only got, like, they don't have to feel bad and go, no, no, I got all of them. I'm pretty sure. Like, are you wow. sure you got pretty all sure. of them or? Or do you, well, and, do you know? And that's the other thing I like people to think about too. So we talk about um, the whose responsibility is it, right? Like whose responsibility is it to have that information? And I think, yes, ethically, we should be disclosing. But the truth of it is not everybody does. And the bigger truth of it is that a lot of times when people don't, it's not malicious. They don't know. And so sure. they're not, it's not sure. that they're intentionally withholding some kind of information. Of course. That there is some gap in knowledge or access or both. And or understanding. Just, or yes. So there's just somewhere there is a mm-hmm. gap and they just don't know to tell you. And so you, it's like going to the mall at Christmas. Someone in your family is coming home with strep throat. Like you're going to go be around a large group of people. <laughs> you're exposing mm-hmm. yourself to something. When mm-hmm. people play with other people, they're exposing themselves. And so understanding that like STIs are an inherent part of sexual activity. They're sure. an inherent yeah. risk to sexual activity. So what whose responsibility is it to keep you safe? If is it yours. your partner's responsibility? <laughs> yeah, it's just yours. Like it's not your partner's, right? It's not um your doctors, it's not your mom's, it's your responsibility. And so then you are the only one who can decide how much risk. And we all have different levels of risk. Some of us will drive down the street 90 miles an hour, no seatbelt, eating a burger while we drive. Others of us are like 10 and 2, seatbelt on, you know, like we all decide how much risk we are willing to undertake. The car analogy is actually terrible because other people can kill you in their cars. But <laughs> we have a we have a standard weaver we use whenever we throw out the uh, you're responsible for X, which is don't let that make you accepting of other people's bad like uh, other people's unhealthy behaviors though. So yes. if you yes. find out your partner's been lying to you about their yes. STI testing, I mean, like that's a, I think this is a little bit different because you say you're responsible, but but you can be in a relationship with someone for five years and they can be lying to you about their STI yes. status. And I don't think yes. I, I don't think at that point I think you did all the due diligence. Everything like you if you've do. been with your partner that yes. long and you did the barriers Absolutely. thing for a while and you've been testing yourself and you thought 100%. you were making a life with this person and then they've been doing unprotected sex with other people and not divulging. Trusting and them like, is reasonable yeah, yes, like, for sure. Yeah. So you're responsible for creating your sort of risk pro- mathematical risk profile, yes. but there's still a percentage of chance that you get like something Spindles. bad happens to you, you know. You get bamboozled. regardless. Yeah. yeah. You're responsible for creating the, the responsible profile, but but don't think you're responsible for other people's bad behavior. If people are lying to you, if people are manipulating you, right. that is not on you. I agree like 100%. But then that goes back to like when we talk about how often should you get tested. And I say, mm-hmm. if you're sexually active at all, sure, once minimum once a year. Because then yeah. Yeah. even in a situation like what you're talking about where you've got – and then that kind of segues into sort of the next part of this conversation. So let's say that you are in a situation where you got bamboozled. You had every reason to think that this barrierless sex was like a safe, safer choice for you, right? That you mm-hmm. were going to be fine. You end up in a situation where you've now um, contracted something that you did not think you were being exposed to, but you did stick with that one year testing because you're sexually active and once a year is, you know, like a good bare minimum, your insurance will most likely cover it. Now mm-hmm. you know. And so you know early and you know early, which means you can get treated. And so that does go into like, when I say it's your responsibility, I only mean that to be empowering. 
I only mean mm-hmm. that to be you have power to manage your health in a way like so so a partner saying, "Oh, you're getting tested, do you not trust me?" Go screw yourself. I'm going to get tested. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. Angel, I want to be clear that you suggest um even in monogamous relationships maybe to be especially. tested <laughs> at least once a uh, once a year. Yeah. Barriered or unbarriered sex, yes. correct? Yes. I think that um it's just a good practice. You know, it's yeah. again, your insurance company agrees with me. They're going to pay for it. It's like getting your teeth cleaned once a year. It's a yeah. good, just preventive measure. It's like getting your oil changed in your car. Even if you think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Okay. It doesn't, it's like not harming you either to get tested. Like Because even with barriers, there's a distinct risk. Yes. I have not met the, the monogamous couple who used barriers for every sexual act for a year. No. If, if you meet that couple, though, I would let them go two years because there is like a 80% projection rate at that <laughs> yeah. point. And with the 40% cheating rate, that, I think they're pretty good, to be honest. But that couple doesn't exist. Like, why would you? Really? What you, wait, Juan, you were monogamous. You used a barrier for everything, every oral, every dental dam, not, everything No, not for oral. Year. And that's, what I, that's the next thing I wanted to talk about. That's the next thing I wanted to talk about <laughs> was the fact that because, like we talked about earlier... We're brought up to think barriers only with PIV. And, you know, we touched on it earlier about barriers for other types of intercourse. So you were using barrier as a prevention from getting pregnant as in a monogamous situation. You weren't using it as a STI prevention or you just (laughs) didn't realize that you needed it for the other things. No, 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 no. It was it was my segue into the barriers for other things. Uh-huh. But Jerry, Jerry and I definitely when because we closed our relationship for about a year and a half just because we had a lot of shit going on outside of just us. Mm-hmm. But Jerry and I always use barriers. We always have used barriers. Condoms. Mm-hmm. External condoms for PIV. Correct. For <laughs> not for STI prevention, not for pregnancy prevention, for mess prevention <laughs> it's cleaner yeah it is it's cleaner it is cleaner. and we're lazy no. um so it just that's i mean that that's interesting Jerry and i always use barriers but it's really honestly for that matter every sex act was what you were saying right and i've said this many times in many speeches but when i go to conventions and i go when you use a barrier for every sex act your chances of catching scis are so incredibly low they're even lower than if you're monogamous people cheer and then i'm like all right who of you actually does that and they're like all of us and i'm like who does it for oral and like no. nobody nobody who does it yeah. for anal less yes. than like not everybody who does it yes. like and i'm like well then you guys are not doing you're it not, yes you're not doing it. right like, that's not what the study was talking about i like right. the faces people make when i tell them they can get gonorrhea in their throat like or the just the face that (laughs) that people make that go so so when you give a penis oral you you put a condom on it first right they're like oh no yeah Yeah. then you're not yeah there is this narrative that that oral sex is um but there's a i want to it's a misconception that it's safer it's it's harder to get some of the things that are harder to treat So like if you're, it's not that it's harder to get an STI, but it's harder to get some of the harder to treat STI. So you're less likely to get like HIV from oral. Mm -hmm. Like the risk is so low as to be outside the scope of the conversation. Like, you know, and so it's not impossible, but it's just very low. And so, so we, we tend to educate to greatest risk. Uh, Most sex education tends to be some form of risk prevention and tends to center around some form of risk prevention. And so for educating to greatest risk, 
then we tend to sometimes leave out things like oral. Leaving out oral also leaves out a lot of queer relationships and queer sexual encounters. Yes. We don't tend to educate in terms of like receiving versus giving. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Because your risk, like when we talk about, um, so this is a fun statistic that uh, one of my colleagues, um, my future podcast host, uh, Dr. Rob Zeglin, um, he is a sex therapist and sex researcher and we do a lot of work together. And he, um, one of his favorite statistics is 75% of men who have sex with men identify as straight. Sounds right. True story. 75% of, and this is statistically across many studies, 75% of, or multiple studies, 75% of men who have sex with with men identify as straight. We talk about behaviors and we talk about risk of behavior and we talk about, um, we tend to conflate that with identities and we Mm -hmm. tend to conflate that with relationship structures. Sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, and that kind of feeds back into monogamy. Uh, like the monogamy identity does not mean you're not actually having sex with multiple people. Yes. It might mean that you're not having sex with any women other than your wife, but you out here Mm -hmm. like occasionally on grinder and in your head, that's not cheating because that's not the commitment you made. Right. Which is something that we talked about in our cheating episode just recently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We had someone. And that, and that's also why you've got men having sex with other men who would look you right in the face and and very sincerely identify to you as straight. And that's just right. one example of that, right? But like we tend to, we talk about risk behavior or like behaviors that are risky. And we tend to conflate those with so many other things that it, mm-hmm. it, when we do research, it ha- the same thing happens. Researchers also conflate these things. So like sure. the CDC websites, when the CDC does recommendations for prevention education, one of the biggest communities that gets the recommendations for MSM risk behavior education is gay communities even though mm-hmm. most MSM folks would not call themselves gay and therefore would not be right, hearing not be that education. Right, not in the community to hear that education. To hear it. And so, yeah. but those, that's not what seems to be true or what feels true. And so that's yeah. not what, what's actually happening. And so it's, it's really interesting to think about how even the numbers we have and the statistics we have aren't always super reliable because well, oh my gosh, well, as I'm, good as the researchers doing the math. Yeah. Well, not, right. just, not just that, but it's really hard to control sex data anyway, but especially STI-based data because it's not ethical to ask people to engage in dangerous behaviors. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a, a place we're going to end up having to stop. I don't know if I'd call it a good stopping point. Like, like <laughs> as many of our topics, we could talk about this forever. I mean, that's why you have an entire website about this kind of stuff because it's a massive topic. You can do research on it. So this is always like scratching the surface and that's, you know, we, we hope eventually we're like what mid year two now. So like year five, we'll do, we'll, we'll have gotten through more of the content of these same episodes, but deeper. So thank you so much for coming on with us. Thanks Angel. for having me. Yes. Thank you for being here. Yeah, this was great. Sorry. It didn't work out sooner. I, uh, I can't believe, I, I can't believe I pulled it together tonight. You guys should have seen my oh, house. Oh, I like appreciate it. I can feel it in the message. You were like, I'm so close. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you, everybody, for joining us. We had a very long episode, so we're going to have a very short ending. We will see you next time sometime in the mid-holiday season. And thank you, Professor Sex, for dropping by so much. Yes, thanks so much, Professor Sex. Everyone go check out her work. Thanks for listening. Links in the description. Bye. Thank you.